Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Last week, we promised you that we'd be right back with another episode. And well, here we are. Because suddenly there seems to be a lot to talk about on Capitol Hill. Last week, we talked tax extenders, which is probably the question we get the most. But this week, we're here to talk about the question I think we get second most. Namely, what is Washington going to do about Pillar 2? Now, look, I don't think I need to give you much background on the OECD's BEPS 2.0 project, and in particular, the efforts to adopt a global minimum tax that is known as Pillar 2. There are a number of other excellent sources for that information, maybe none better than my colleague Gary Scanlon's podcast, Inside International Tax. In fact, they are out just this week with a new Pillar 2 episode. Now, the particulars of Pillar 2 are very complex, mind-numbingly so, and that's one of the chief complaints about the project, the dizzying amount of complexity it adds to an already highly complex set of international tax rules. But importantly for today, know that these proposals are controversial, and among them, the UTPR, the Undertax Profits Rule, in particular, has caused the greatest controversy on Capitol Hill. But why is it so controversial? And is there anything that could be done about it at this point anyway? If so, what? And what might the consequences be to the U.S. tax system? That question got a bright light shined on it just last week when the economists at the Joint Committee of Taxation, the official scorekeepers on Capitol Hill, provided us their first revenue estimates around the implementation or non-implementation of Pillar 2. All this shapes up for a lively conversation for today, and our guests are the perfect people to enlighten us. We welcome back Dan Winnick, an international tax principal here at KPMG, but prior to that, tax counsel to the Ways and Means Committee and one of the lead drafters of the international tax aspects of the House's Build Back Better legislation back in 2021. And of course, we welcome back our old friend Jen Acuna, who is lead drafter of the international provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017. Okay, Dan, so my first question is for you. So much of Build Back Better appeared, at least from the outside looking in, to be drafted in a way that would get the U.S. to be Pillar 2 compliant. Questions are, is that true? How important was that as a Build Back Better goal? And if it was a Build Back Better goal, why? What was it you guys were trying to achieve when you were putting Build Back Better together? So when the House Democrats were working on Build Back Better in the context of bicameral negotiations that also included the president's staff, there was a goal of making the U.S. international tax system consistent with what the Treasury Department had promised abroad, which would be substantially similar to Pillar 2. Now, this was happening before the details of Pillar 2 had been completely fleshed out. So there was a lot more uncertainty about the details of exactly what Pillar 2 was going to look like. But making sure that the United States would be treated as a jurisdiction, the tax system of which was qualifying so that other countries would not be imposing their income inclusion rules or under tax payment rules on the United States was a critical part of what they're trying to do. Now, there are two reasons for this. One was a policy reason, that is, at least when I was working on the Hill, what I heard from the members I was working for was an interest in making sure that there was an incentive around the world to have a minimum level of tax. There was a concern about what some called stateless income or places where there is no tax imposed. But the proposals to change the international tax system were also a revenue raiser to pay for 
spending priorities, some of which actually made it into law, most notably the renewable energy provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I think it's important to recognize that when there was momentum for the international tax changes in the United States, that was in the context of being a revenue raiser. That's interesting. But there always seems to be demand for another revenue raiser from some other spending priority at some point. So I can see the U.S. coming back to this because there's always a need for more money. But let me just ask you on Build Back Better, what specific changes were you guys working on that you viewed as essential to getting the U.S. system Pillar 2 compliant? Was it guilty country by country? You know, what were these particular aspects you were focused on? Well, guilty country by country was a critical one from the administration's perspective. They viewed that as one of the key commitments they had made to foreign governments. And so when Build Back Better was being drafted, there were other proposals. For example, in earlier proposals by Senators Wyden, Warner, and Brown had divided between higher and lower taxes. So you'd have groups of countries. Ultimately, that approach was not the approach that the House went within the Build Back Better Act proposal. And I think that that reflects the administration's negotiations and the emphasis they had placed on going to a country by country system. The other, of course, was the tax rate. So moving up to at least 15 percent, the House proposals went a little bit higher than that. And that, again, reflected the need to have a revenue raiser. And then on the inbound side, having a beat that looked to low tax payments abroad. So outbound payments that were not subject to significant tax. So that was also a very important policy change. So really redesigning or modifying the international tax system to get to that 15% country by country tax system was, I think, what we were looking for at that time. Got it. Okay. So Jen, you heard what Dan just said, that it was a specific goal put forth by the administration, but taken up by Congress and versions in both the House and the Senate supported that. So we sort of know where Democrats were then, and I think probably still largely are today. But for Republicans, Pillar 2 hasn't been so warmly embraced, has it? So talk to us a little bit about where Republicans are on Pillar 2, and if they don't like it, which I don't think they do, what is their chief complaint about Pillar 2? Well, there are many complaints about Pillar 2 among Republicans, but I would say it boils down to one of the biggest complaints is that, and I don't think this is necessarily just Republicans, I think it was the failure to obtain congressional buy-in with respect to the deal that was being hashed out overseas. Because like Dan just mentioned, House Democrats were trying to tailor Build Back Better in a way that would be compliant with the deal, in a way that raised revenue. And the details of the deal changed between the time that was drafted and the time that the deal was struck. So the lack of congressional buy-in has been a number one pushback by Republicans with respect to Pillar 2. The second one that I've noticed, and this is kind of like a recurring theme when the Treasury Secretary comes in to testify before Congress, before the committees of jurisdiction, is is the outcome of Pillar 2, an outcome that is revenue positive for the United States. There was a lot of concern among Republicans that not only was the administration not roping in Congress, that they were writing checks that they could not cash. Because remember, Treasury can agree to a number of things, but if you don't have the ability to move legislation to actually make the deal compliant, how far have you actually gotten? 
So that was another issue. There were a lot of questions to Secretary Yellen from Republicans at the Senate Finance Committee and House Ways and Means Committee asking, how does this deal help or hurt the U.S. FISC? How is it going to impact revenue? Because there's big concern that that wasn't really one of the primary drivers to the deal. And the last one, which is also a very important one, is there is a big pushback on the UTPR in particular, and the pushback that has been very public about and introduced legislation about it is that it, in essence, cedes taxing jurisdiction, U.S. primary taxing jurisdiction to foreign countries. And I don't think that's necessarily a controversial position for Republicans. I think that they have pointed that out. That's one of the primary talking points with respect to the legislation that they've released is how did we get to a point where the U.S. was ceding taxing jurisdiction with respect to a big chunk of revenue? And how does that affect the U.S. FISC? So I think that is kind of like the three-prong opposition to Pillar 2 among Republicans. And I think that that's kind of a bicameral Republican response, at least so far. Yeah, it's a lot. And if you all think Jen might be making those up, you don't have to search very hard to see all the points that she just made in writing, because Republicans have sent a number of letters to Secretary Yellen outside the U.S., et cetera, making these very points about why they are unhappy with where Pillar 2 is. So, Dan, question to you then is, now with a little bit of distance from your time on the Hill and developing Build Back Better, do you think Republicans have any valid points in any of that? Or <laughs> do you think that there are counterpoints to their points? Well, I think it's helpful to look back and think of how we got here during the last administration when what ended up becoming the two pillar solution for taxation of the digital economy that that got us the IIR and UTPR uh, was first being discussed. That administration's position on pillar two was that they welcome technical development of a global minimum tax and their priority was ensuring that the U.S. guilty regime would be seen as a valid minimum tax. And that would ensure that any kind of what was then called an undertax payment rule, but some kind of enforcement mechanism that was being worked out would not apply to the U.S. So the idea in the beginning of the negotiations was that the U.S. was already good. Whatever the U.S. had was already good. And this actually, in my mind, connects to really the strategy that the administration has at the OECD, which is the executive branch represents the United States there, but ultimately can't change U.S. laws. And so you could imagine one strategy you might have as a as a head of a delegation to an OECD, which is to only really make commitments and be willing to discuss either best practices or make commitments about positions that are possible to change through regulation. So for example, the U.S. might support drafting model legislation for a minimum tax, but might not support a more comprehensive agreement on what that tax system would be. Now, that is extremely limiting. And so a different approach is to change the law that the U.S. would make and then simultaneously try to move that law through Congress and take advantage of the administration's sort of bully pulpit to motivate members to come around to the administration's point of view. And I think that over time, the discussions at the OECD have moved in that direction where the administration saw an opportunity to move its own policy preferences at the OECD and through what was at the time the Build Back Better Act. And that did have some risk in it. So it definitely involved bringing Congress along 
on their policy proposal, which is just different from some of the approaches that have been taken in the past. But the U.S. also sort of limits its own influence if it only can go to the OECD saying this is the law in the U.S., this is the limits of what can be done. It's it's a difficult challenge, and it's one that really is a deep institutional challenge, and there's not a clear answer that both lets the U.S. be kind of a full participant and doesn't sort of require this back and forth between Congress and the administration. And then that kind of gets into what it means to consult and what it would mean to bring back to kind of involve Congress. It's kind of an interesting question. Is there something they could have done differently that would have had Republicans along? I think given the fact that this was seen as a revenue raiser and being used as a revenue raiser to push through the Democrat spending priorities in the last Congress made that difficult. That was a policy choice as opposed to hiving off international and having it be something separate. So I'm not really commenting on the validity of the Republican position, but instead the political dynamics were really an outcome of the bigger dynamic that was going on at the time. And then on the UTPR, I think both the administration and pretty much everyone in Congress is not happy at the prospect of the UTPR applying to U.S. operations. I should also say that it's not great to have the IAR applying to the U.S. operations of inbound investors. It's not really just the UTPR. And the solution that the administration would propose would be for the U.S. to have taxation that's compliant or consistent with Pillar 2. So it kind of just brings you back to the beginning. Do you think Pillar 2 is the right answer? And does increasing the level of tax overall and the taxation of large multinationals income, does that result in an opportunity for more taxes in the U.S. without making the U.S. a less competitive jurisdiction? And that's just really the core of the policy debate. Yeah, and another thing we shouldn't forget here, of course, is that in defense of the administration, that part of their negotiation position, their budget was a 28% corporate rate. And a 28% corporate rate would have changed a lot of the dynamic here. Now, we can look back and say, was that a reasonable assumption? In the end, it was not, right? Because it failed. But at the time, was it reasonable? I don't know. We'll let other people determine that. But had we ended up with a 28% corporate rate, I think a lot of the dynamic here would have been very different. But, you know, that's all in the past. There's no point of crying over spilt milk. But, Jen, the question, I guess, then is it appears that Pillar 2 has plenty of momentum in terms of happening outside the U.S. So Republicans disliking it as much as they do. Is there anything they can do about it at this point? And I'm just saying, let's assume for the moment we get past the 2024 elections and Republicans find themselves in control of Washington. Is there anything they can do about it? It's going to be a little harder, but I mean, obviously, there's always something that Congress can do. These things aren't set in stone. The U.S. can always change its position with respect to Pillar 2. They're doing right now at the moment, you know, we have split government in D.C. So House Republicans have released their UTPR retaliation bill. Is that going to pass? Probably not. We have split government. But they're starting to signal if the next election favors Republicans, where they might go from here. If Pillar 2 does get momentum, if everyone starts enacting UTPRs, the types of things Republicans might do, which would be retaliation, for lack of a better term. There's this UTPR bill. Folks on the Hill indicated that it's not really meant to be a something that actually kicks in, but it's meant to be used as leverage for companies to ask our foreign trading partners to back down on the UTPRs. 
And of course, there's always those two nasty words that are always looming whenever we talk about these taxes, trade war. That's something that Republicans could certainly, if the next election, we see a new administration, a Republican administration, and if Republicans are able to hold on to the House and flip the Senate, you could expect to see the potential to have some trade activity with respect to Pillar 2 and other countries that try to implement these taxes against U.S. multinationals. So it's pretty limited, but they'll have some big tools in the arsenal. UTPR, retaliation bill, we're calling it that for lack of a better description. I think it's important to you. A lot of people have been looking at it, parsing the words, et cetera. And I think you made the right point about it, Jen. I wouldn't read that as this is the thing that would get enacted and let's try and understand exactly how it works. I think it was intended more as a signal. Like this is the kind of thing that we would consider, which is raising the tax rates on companies based in jurisdictions that have implemented discriminatory taxes against the U.S., we could begin raising their rates in a way that would be very painful. And of course, you're right. There's a fine line between trade and tax policy at some point here. And trade is definitely going to be another lever that Republicans could pull. But they may find themselves ultimately in a position where they may have to simply concede on this point, or the rest of the world may find themselves in a position where they don't feel comfortable pushing forth a UTPR that would, as Dan said, tax U.S. companies on U.S. income here in the U.S. All right, let's just shift for a second because we got really important news. Was it last week or the other week? The Joint Committee of Taxation, the official scorekeepers here in Washington, put out scores on revenue estimates associated with Pillar 2. So, Dan, my question is, did those scores, the way those came out from JCT, and you can describe them a bit if you want to, did they come as a surprise to you or were they pretty much what you expected? The pamphlet that was released that JCT wrote, it didn't have revenue estimates that were exactly comparable to what we would see if there were legislation proposed. It was an analysis of the Pillar 2 changes and potential changes in U.S. law and then some estimates of the revenue effects in the long run. So it doesn't necessarily tell you how any particular change in law would be scored. That said, I think there's a lot we can learn from this pamphlet. It's a very interesting document. One of the most noteworthy parts of the document was the estimates around the rest of the world enacting Pillar 2 and then the United States either not acting or acting. In both of those, so whether the United States acts or doesn't act, the pamphlet estimates show a decline in revenue relative to a baseline where none of the proposals are enacted anywhere in the world. And that makes a degree of sense because the elements of Pillar 2 really end up both increasing taxation by foreign companies of their controlled foreign corporations and also through the domestic minimum top-up tax, increasing foreign taxation at source. And those are situations where the United States has been exercising its secondary taxing right through guilty and subpart F. You might see now if there's more taxation at source, that will give rise to more creditable taxes that would ultimately decrease U.S. taxation on that income. So intuitively, it makes some sense that this project by itself decreases U.S. revenue. And part of the response implicitly from Secretary Yellen's comments in support of the proposal as a revenue raiser for the United States might have been that it increases capacity to raise the corporate income tax rate. That is to say, the corporate tax rate can be higher without making the U.S. a less competitive jurisdiction for investment because there are taxes everywhere. 
that's at least one implication of all of this. Another implication is that there will be reactions to the changes in Pillar 2, for example, if low taxes can't be used as a way to attract investment, especially an intangibles investment that doesn't create substance-based carve-out that would reduce the pillar to tax base, then there might be incentives for governments around the world to come up with other kinds of incentives, like direct payments or grants or perhaps payroll incentives. There are a lot of different ways that countries can incentivize location of activities. And so that's one reaction you might see through here. The U.S. tax system, of course, uses a lot of tax credits, which just reduce the top line rate for purposes of Pillar 2, and that can reduce what appears to be the tax rate imposed in the United States, which in turn increases the likelihood of IARs or UTPRs being imposed on U.S. income. I think another implication of this report, looking forward to 2025, is that it might change the scoring of legislation that might happen. The effective rates applicable to income that's guilty in FIDI are both going up, and of course the beat rates going up, and all of the individual changes in TCJA are set to expire at that time. And so there's going to be a big tax negotiation in 2025. International, under some circumstances, could have been seen as a plug or an opportunity for raising money there to pay for some sort of compromise on the expiring provisions in 2025. And I think you have to take a close look at this pamphlet and say, what can we actually realistically expect given the changes in foreign law and how that's going to affect the taxation of foreign income? So I think it's a pretty significant document, even if it doesn't tell us what the actual revenue numbers on a revenue table are going to be. It's very insightful. I didn't come away shocked. I think a lot of people seemed a little shocked by the fact that we were either going to lose some money or a lot of money with where Pillar 2 goes. But as you said, it sort of makes sense. To your point, I think the administration was a little cagey about how they described what they viewed the revenue effects to be as to be either, uh, you know, roughly neutral or maybe we might raise some revenue. And the joint tax analysis shines a lot of light on that. So, Jen, then here's my last question for you. What do you think the political implications of this revenue analysis from JCT, as Dan just described it, what are the political implications? Let's imagine the scenario where Republicans are successful in the 2024 election. They find themselves in control of Washington. Does this mean anything for what they may or may not do? I don't know if it means anything for what they may or may not do. I think the political impact is significant with respect to this JCT report because it kind of flies in the face. Of course, you know, Treasury was a little cagey with the way they described it. But it does beg the question, why did Treasury strike this deal if at best we still lose money, right? Like, who are they representing? I think that from a political perspective is going to be a significant talking point. And for us tax folks, let's be realistic. Is it going to be like a town hall issue? Probably not. But from a tax perspective, from a committee perspective, I think that it does kind of add fuel to the fire of opposition to Pillar 2, just as a general matter, as we face these ongoing negotiations with the OECD with respect to the details of Pillar 2. This is proof positive that the U.S. did not get a good deal. There's no way to kind of work around that. You have a revenue loss if you comply, and you have a revenue loss if you don't. So it's kind of a lose-lose, for lack of a better term. But from a political perspective, I think that it's a very powerful report when you see the numbers there, even though we all had a sense, right? I mean, we have the details of the negotiations. We kind of know where the money is going to go. 
and it isn't going to be a lot of new revenue coming into the United States. It's kind of keeping, trying to keep as much revenue as we can from our existing base, not really expanding the U.S. base as it is currently. I totally agree with Dan. I think it's really going to impact the 2025 negotiations for a lot of these provisions, like the guilty, the B, FDII, Guilty and Beat in particular, those were revenue sources, right? Those were opportunities to raise money. Extending the existing rates would have cost money. Maybe that mitigates against that revenue cost because a lot of that base, it's gone. So I think that it is going to inform that. And whether or not there is even a will to do anything in the international space in 2025, why negotiate an extension of a favorable guilty rate or a beat rate when it really doesn't make a difference. I mean, it's a difficult vote. It doesn't make a difference with respect to the revenue. It may just not be worth it anymore. And I think that is kind of the takeaway that I take. The revenue impact is significant. That's going to really raise a lot of questions. The Treasury is going to have to answer to these numbers. And it's the estimating process. Is this 100% right? No. Are they ever? No, I mean, I don't think that's the expectation. It's to give folks a ballpark, but the ballpark is not favorable. It does not look right. good. The directional aspect is correct. To, the, right. to what extent, we'll see. So with that, thank you both. That was a very enlightening conversation. In closing, let's go back to that joint tax analysis we discussed. We sort of danced around it, but specifically, here's what the joint committee said. Assuming the rest of the world adopts Pillar 2 and the U.S. does not, U.S. tax receipts would decline by $122 billion in the decade between 2023 and 2033. If, on the other hand, the rest of the world adopts Pillar 2 and so does the U.S., then tax receipts decline by $56.5 billion over that same decade. Not surprisingly, Republicans on Capitol Hill were quick to observe that this is all a bad deal for the U.S. and for U.S. taxpayers, and it certainly might be. And the immediate reaction from some seemed to be that this analysis sealed the grave of Pillar 2 in a world where Republicans would control Washington in 2025. But I think that's a hasty conclusion, and I think it lacks an understanding of how this all might play out. Because when we get to 2025, and if we assume that other jurisdictions have already implemented Pillar 2 as they have committed to do, then we are already in that scenario where we are losing the $122 billion. Then enacting Pillar 2 wouldn't lose revenue. It would be scored by joint tax as raising revenue against that baseline of losing $122 billion. In fact, it would raise more than $65 billion against that baseline. Got it? So no matter who is in control in 2025, according to the joint tax estimates, adopting Pillar 2 will be a revenue raiser against the baseline. Now, some may bemoan how we got there, and in some cases they will make valid points. But the mathematical reality is that Pillar 2 will be a revenue raiser if these joint tax estimates stick. Now, maybe that's a big if, but it's the best we have to go on today. Look, 2025 is shaping up to be a big tax year with so many TCJA expiring items coming up for extension. Congress will be looking for a list of revenue raisers that year to offset those costs. Whether it becomes law or not, we'll have to wait and see, but I'm fairly certain Pillar 2 is going to be on that list. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.